Go ahead and be seated because we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And, um, you know, it, this is not for uh, kindergarten Christians right here. I'm just going to start just like that. Uh, this is going to mature many of you tonight. Many of you are going to take leaps in one night in your walk with God because of what will be taught from this pulpit tonight. Um, your eyes are going to be open to some things. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. And I'll be honest with you, I really had to wrestle with God um, literally for the last two days about even approaching this subject um, because I just, I am not real sure that Christians in general have arrived at a place of maturity to receive this kind of meat. That's not condescending to you. I'm, that's why I said Christians in general. Um, where we're going tonight, um, few people step out in this depth of water. Um, but we're going to go there tonight. Amen? And I know you're going to be blessed. So when I was preparing this, I, I thought about the difference in being planted and being rigid. Things that are rigid are easily broken. Things that are rigid are easily broken. And there's going to be some traditional mindsets that we're going to visit tonight that I see as rigid places in many people's lives. That's going to be challenged. Uh, people that are planted, their roots grow deep. And the wind even makes their roots grow deeper. So that ultimately they are stronger because of what they have resisted. And what they have faced because the roots grow deeper. And uh, you're going to feel that tonight as we begin our dialogue. But I, I, just, I just pray that you'll be open. Everyone say, I'm open to receive what the Lord has for me tonight. So the challenge with these types of series is trying to keep everything in balance. In other words, keep it on an encouraging note while presenting a ton of information. You're fixing to feel like a hydrant's been turned on and it's going to peel your hair back. But, you know, I want it to be encouraging to you. And Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. What was the rock? The rock was his confession that you are Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus' response to that was on this rock, on that confession, that revelation, that understanding, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, in the last year, the church across the globe and uniquely in the United States has suffered a great deal. And, and really, uh, as I was talking to my son about it, who did a great job preaching here on Sunday, he said something to me very profound. He said, Dad, you know, the, the church Jesus built is not suffering at all. And it never did. He said, really, all this past year did was reveal to us who the church really is. And I thought that to be very profound. I thought that to be very interesting. And he's right about that. So tonight, as I begin to teach, I just want you to be open to receive the revelation God has for you. Education can be weighty at times. Revelation takes some digging. And there's not many Christians that want to dig anymore. 
Everything is pretty much superficial. It's pretty much elementary. Uh, but we're going to go deeper in order to go higher in our walk of spirituality. Can you say amen to that? So what is the church battling in this hour? Is the church under attack? Absolutely it is. We see it in raw form, but what are the influences, and this is the question we have to ask ourselves tonight, what are the influences behind all that the church is facing in what I call the critical crossroads of church history? The church has never been here. Pastors have never pastored through a pandemic, ever. Not, not like we've seen in this country. So this has been a very challenging season. So I wrote this down today, and here's my first quote of the night. Awareness is the beginning of understanding. All right? You might want to write that down, or if you've got, uh, looks like many of you have a photographic memory, that's good. <laughs> Awareness is the beginning of understanding. One of the major attacks in this moment, and Dustin mentioned it, I told you Bishop Michael Pitts talked to me about it two weeks ago, is an attack on confidence. Okay. An attack on confidence. And I want to show you how deep that runs. It's an attack on pastor's confidence in their people. And it's an attack on the people's confidence in their pastors. Um, pastors don't know if people are coming back or they're not going to come back. The enemy is behind that influence, that attack on confidence. Paul said this, I am confident of this very thing. I've learned a lot of stuff, but I'm confident of one thing, that he who began a good work in you shall also complete it. Now, let me tell you something. If you can have a man's confidence, his anointing will wane. Because our confidence is in our endorsement from God which is what we call the anointing. Can you say amen to that? Amen. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read a few passages here in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to go ahead and get into it. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. This is verse 3. Now listen to this apostle talking to this church at Philippi. I thank God every time I remember you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, listen to it, I always make my request for you with joy. Why? Because of your fellowship in what? The gospel. From the first day until now. Because of your what? Fellowship in the gospel. From the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing. There it is. He that, he that began a good work will complete it. Verse 7 though. Listen to it. Even as it is meet for me to think this for you all or of you all, because I have you in my heart. That's a true pastor. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. There's that confidence. For God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Man, that's strong words of affection from a man of God. I'm worried about you. I think about you. 
I pray for you. When I pray for you, I pray with joy because you have been faithful in your commitment to advance the kingdom of God by partaking in the preaching of the gospel with me. There's this commitment. There's this covenant. There's this continuance among these people and that he is celebrating these people and he's reminding them who he is to them and who they are to him. And that's very important. And in this hour where people are flaky and, and, and falling off left and right, you must remain true to where God has planted you. Be rooted and grounded in that faith. When you skip down to verse 12, watch his, the way he continues his dialogue. But I would that you should understand. Say that word. Understand. There it is. Understanding is revelation. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is application. I want you to understand that the things which happened to me have fallen out to further the gospel. Well, that'll preach. So that in my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all the other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, listen to it, are waxing confident because I'm in prison. When you don't falter in your faith, people are watching you. And he said, my bonds are strengthening other people. And they are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some, some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ out of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my problem. But the other preach with love, knowing, listen carefully, that I am set. Say that word, set. set. I am set for the defense of the gospel. I am set for the defense of the gospel. Number one thing we're going to talk about is the Apostle Paul's position. The Apostle Paul's position. Pastor Dustin said something Sunday that I thought, he said a bunch of stuff. If I were you, I'd go back and listen to that message. But he said this, there comes a time in a man of God's life that he has to make a self-declaration. And by doing that, he is stating confidence in his own identity. Right? So when Paul writes these epistles, which is two-thirds of the New Testament, most of them he begins with the same sentence. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, denoting the idea that he knew who he was. And he was confident in that. He often called himself an apostle. It literally means one who is sent. An apostle, one who is sent. At some point in this church, we've never done this. I see David and Darlene here tonight. They've heard me teach on the apostolic for years. They were a part of our ministry years ago. But let me say something to you. There's a great misunderstanding concerning the position of, of an apostle and the functioning of the apostolic. Okay? The, fun, the functioning of the apostolic takes on the characteristics of the office of the apostle as it relates to expression. And what I just said is, you as a born-again believer's congregation in the house of God must get to a place of discernment that you recognize what five-fold office is standing in front of you when they're speaking. That's good. Come on, Pastor. 
Because if you don't know where they're coming from, you're going to miss the expressions of that spirit. Whew. And when you miss it, you're going to miss a revelation. You can miss a miracle. You can miss something grandiose taking place in your life. So I, here's what I believe. I believe that God is about to bring back an apostolic anointing to the church like we've never seen before. And God set first in the church apostles. The word first is proton. It's a positive force in the makeup of an atom. I believe that God is about to bring back an apostolic anointing to, the, to his people, to his church, that's with this attitude, with this confidence. Anything that we decide to do under God's direction, we can accomplish. Amen. And nothing by any means can stop us. It can't even hinder us. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So I'm going to get into that apostolic thing with you later. But watch what he says here. I am set, in verse 17, chapter 1, for the defense of the gospel. Now, when I read that, the first time I ever read that, I thought, man, does the gospel even need a defense? Why does he say, I am set for the defense of the... Can't the gospel stand by itself? Hmm. I am sent to preach the gospel. That's apostolic. I am set... To protect the gospel. I'm sent to preach it. But I am set. To protect it. The word set. In, in the Greek here. Literally means something or some things. That cover a particular spot. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm like a city. That is situated on a hill. I stand out. And I stand up. Mm. What do you do when God decides to emphasize a man? We say we exalt him. But what are you going to do when God says it's your turn? I'm about to magnify you. Now, already your brain is being twisted like a dish rag, and you're thinking, now, wait a minute. That's totally opposite of everything I've ever heard. Let me show you how God works. Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to magnify you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. The word magnify is, I'm going to make you large in respect and honor. In the sight. Well, you got to read it in the Hebrew because it literally means as the eye of the garden. Now, what does that mean? It's landscape terminology. Have you ever seen landscape with a fountain in the middle of the landscape? That's the central point of the landscape. It's all part of the picture. But God tells Joshua, I'm going to make you the fountain of the landscape. That's strong. And when Paul says, I am set for the defense of the gospel, he is saying, I am the centerpiece of the landscape of God's work in the area I'm in, which to this church was Philippi. Boy, let me tell you something. That's some serious confidence from a man of God. That he basically tells them, he tells them at one point in the book of Acts chapter 16, you wouldn't even have the gospel if I wouldn't have arrived. 
That's strong. So he says, set for the defense of the gospel. Here, here's how it reads in the original. To be by God's intent, set, chosen, destined, and appointed. We are set up to stand out. Say it with me. Come on. We are set up to stand out. Stay with me tonight, y'all. Don't lose me. He said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. I am set up to stand out. Church, hear Pastor Rick tonight. We are set up to stand out. I believe the word of the Lord to the church at this moment is the same word from Mordecai to Esther where he says, if you do not do what you were sent to do, you have arrived in this time or at the kingdom for such a time as this. And if you don't do what you were sent to do, relief and deliverance will come from another place. And here's what I believe God is saying to the church. I have set you up for this time for you to stand out. Strong stuff. He said, I am set for the defense. Here we go. The Greek word is apologetic. I am set for the defense. It means to give verbal defense or a statement of reason. Whoo, Lord. A statement of reason, of verbal defense. I am set to defend the gospel. If you got any questions, Paul said, come to me. That's some serious confidence. I've learned something, and I was reading this the other day, that in the sphere of theological orientation, in relation to truth, are y'all still with me? Welcome to your college crash course tonight on theology. There's basically three areas that make up theological orientation. Number one is apologetics. What is apologetics? Apologetics is a systematic discourse in defense as of a doctrine or truth or to give an answer. So when apostles preach under an apostolic sent anointing, they have come with an answer. Did I just lose you? This is called apologetic preaching, not apologies. You're not sorry for it. You're set for it. So when apostles show up under an apostolic anointing, they come with the answer. And they defend the good news. Boy, that's strong. So sometimes you'll hear preachers preaching and you can feel it, man. They're standing for truth. They're standing for the good news. They want you to know your best is yet to come. They're going to prophesy you out of this building. The hairs on your arms are going to be standing on the end, dancing around. You're going to walk out. Your shoulders are going to be square. There's going to be a strut in your stride. You're going to be on cloud nine. You're going to feel that proton anointing hit you, right? This is called apologetic preaching. There's another type of preaching that's called polemic preaching. Polemic preaching is a very aggressive style of preaching. It is an offensive attack on any false doctrine. That's when you get after it. And you start calling stuff out. 
I'm going to show you how hid the church is in this hour and how we must come out of our shell. The third method of theological orientation that we've been taught is what is called proof of truth, which is really living out your testimony. All right? It's really living out what you preach. That's the strongest method of preaching. Y'all just missed that. The strongest method of preaching, embracing theological orientation in relation to truth, is live what you preach. Don't say one thing and live another way. If you're not going to live it, don't preach it. I ain't talking about preachers from the pulpit. I'm talking about Y-O and you. Don't walk around preaching to everybody unless you live in it. That's proof of truth. Strong stuff. Watch what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. There it is. Apologetics. Always be ready to give an answer. Always be ready to give a reason. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And watch what he says. Do it with meekness and reverence. Come on now. Boy, have you ever heard that talk? No. You've been taught, point your finger at everybody and tell them they're going to a devil's hell. You've been taught to be mean to people because religion left alone without the seasoning of grace is a very hard way to live. And he says, be willing and ready to give a defense or an answer or a reason for the hope you carry to anyone who asks you about it. And he says, do it with meekness. And do it with reverence. In other words, don't shove it down people's throat. Be kind. Look at Jesus at the woman with the woman at the well. He sat down with her and he had a long discussion about her life. And he tells her, you've been married so many times. The man you're living with now is not your husband. He says, listen, you, you can have life. And you can have life in a wonderful, wonderful way. All you've got to do is just drink from the fountain that I'm telling you about. What a wonderful discourse on evangelism. Never rebuked her. Never said you're going to hell. Never got in her face with a sign that said you are destined for eternal fire. Never did that. And that's why I wonder what happened to Christianity over the last few centuries. What happened to us? Why did we become so dogmatic mean in our presentation of a gospel filled with grace and love? Where did we get so hard? Where, where did that evolve from? What happened? The other side of that coin is why have we become so timid? Why has Christians become so introverted in a generation that is screaming extremities? The only institution not extreme in, extreme in this hour is the church. Everything else is extreme. Did you not watch the Grammys the other night? 
Good for you. I, I watched one part just to see if they did what I thought they was going to do, and they did. But we're going to cancel Speedy Gonzalez and Pepe Le Pew. While filth is raining on TVs and children are sitting there watching that. But they can't watch Pepe Le Pew. It's a very disgusting time. And here's the thing. Let me tell you what house ain't going to answer the question. The White House ain't going to answer. Let me tell you another house that's not going to answer. The schoolhouse is not going to answer. And if you're looking at them two houses for your answer, you're looking at the wrong house. And the house that has the answer is suddenly quiet. And you know why we're quiet? Because we don't want to offend tithers. And we would never bring an apostolic anointing up in the church because if you did, you would tell people to sit down and you would mark those that cause divisions among you. But you, the church today has no clue how the early church really operated. The respect the honor, the offices, the anointing. We are so far from it, and it's all human tradition. Yes, it is. So I thought about this, and I thought about the ideologies that we are battling today, the stuff we're fighting today. Can I introduce you to some of this? Here's what I call it. Philosophical infiltration. Are y'all getting a crash course, college course here? Good. I call it philosophical infiltration. It's meandered its way into theology. And now it's hard for people to discern if people are speaking to them from philosophy or theology. True theology is really neology. True theology is Knowing theos. It's the gnosis of theos. Not knowing about God. Knowing God. You can't impart theology to people. The study of God. About a God you don't know. So what we've done. Is we've given you knowledge. And not revelation. And that's why it's easy to teach second grade theology to this generation. Because if you go to third grade, they can't handle it. So they won't give you five keys to success. Do this in your relationship and you'll be married forever. And my God, if you don't know how to be married, I mean, you, you, you're real serious with me right now? Are you, are you being serious with me right now? People have been getting married since the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3, this started happening. Genesis chapter 2, this started happening. And we're still making million dollars on telling you how to be married. I'm thinking, good God, have mercy. How many marriage seminars do you need? Hey, here's the key. Be nice to each other. Don't talk mean to each other. Love each other. You'll be fine. No, it's a lot more complicated than that because I found out he's got issues from his childhood. You know, well, pray. We are so far away. If you, and I challenge you to do this. You say, Pastor Rick, wait a minute, that's not necessary. Yes, it is necessary because I'm tired of second grade education in the church. I'm real tired of preachers telling me, preach to people like they're in the second grade. 
Well, you preach to them like they're in the second grade. Guess what grade they're going to remain in? Second grade. I was thinking about River today. And I watch him. He's either breastfeeding or on the bottle. Well, he likes doing that about every hour and a half. You know, he's, he's growing like crazy. Well, I thought about bringing a bottle up here tonight full of formula and just sucking it right in front of you. And you say, why would you do that, Pastor Rick? To show you how crazy that looks. It looks ridiculous for Christians that's been serving God for 15 years, listen to me clearly, to still be drinking milk when you should be eating meat. And you say, is that scriptural? You need to read the book of Hebrews chapter six. Paul tells the church that, he tells the Hebrew people, listen, you should be eating meat by now. You're still talking about rapture, baptism. You're still talking about that stuff. You're still trying to convince people they need to be baptized. You're still trying to show people how to stay married. Are you, are you that immature? I'm going to start bringing bottles to church. And I'm just going to set them right across here. And just say, all the babies, come get your bottles. I saw a preacher preach one, you know, a calf bottle. I saw him preach a whole message with that calf bottle on his pulpit. And every now and then he was mad and he was preaching. Every now and then he'd just hold it out there and say, I want to come nurse on it. And that's how you feel sometimes when you know there's more to this spiritual walk with Christ. And you're trying to tell people, man, don't tell me you're loyal and then forsake me. That's what kids do. Kids do that on the playground. I'm not your friend anymore. I'm going to play on that playground now. We've got a bunch of childish, immature Christians in churches today. All right. Philosophical infiltration. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. If you're learning anything, say, I'm learning. All right. Verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Listen to what he says. Let your roots grow down into him. And let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. And you will overflow with gratitude, thankfulness. Verse 8. Don't let, listen to a church. Don't, y'all better listen to me on this Facebook right here. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking. But watch this. And from the spiritual powers of this world rather than of Christ. The NIV reads verse 8 like this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Hollow, deceptive, empty philosophies. Don't be captured by it. Now, don't be captured by human tradition either. Uh -huh. yeah. Speak, sir. Two things that are killing the church 
is empty philosophy and your traditions. We're trapped in a box and we're trying to figure out why God ain't moving. We don't give him room to move because if it don't go down like we're used to it going down, then we're not participating. Here's the number one, the number one philosophy and ideology we're battling today in the church, secularism. Let me explain it to you. All of these philosophies evolved over time and they became stronger and broader than they were originally introduced. Number one is secularism, which was really in the beginning the teaching of the separation of church and state. That was the original intention of secularism. But as it broadened over time, watch what happened. It turned into a position of suppressing religion in any public sphere. Secularism is suppressing religion in every place. So you take the Bible from the library. You take the Ten Commandments from the courthouse. What are you doing? You are secularizing a nation. And you're removing the influence of Christianity and replacing it with a dogmatic reasoning that destroys the fabric of everything that represents God and his church. And that's where we are today. It is, secularism is the indifference to or the rejection of and exclusion of religion and any of its considerations. Secularism. So within the church, here's what's happening. We see homosexuality, abortion, and other outright violations of the doctrines of Christ becoming accepted or at minimum acceptable trends. Well, abortion ain't that bad. It's okay if your music director is gay. Lord, it's okay if children do not respect parents. Let me tell you what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually. By the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourself the will of God. Do not what? Conform to this world, to the patterns of this world. But be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. We live in a day where it seems to me that the closer we can get the church looking like the world the more comfortable the people in the church are. So if the Holy Ghost did break out, like in the book of Acts, the actions and activities of the apostles, and a demon might be cast out of somebody, well, that's too, that's too fanatical. That's, that's out there. So what we do is we comfort you and placate you 
with everything we could possibly give you from smoke on the stage to lights to certain sounds to make you, you feel like you're in a lounge somewhere relaxing. And there's no demand on you because if we lean on you, you're going to get offended. So the more secular we can become, the more like the world we look and the more acceptable we are. <laughs> That's one. Gnosticism, number two, comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Here's what Gnosticism says. Take a little knowledge from every religion and build your life. So we start saying things like this. Muslims ain't that bad. People that follow Buddha, I mean, that religion is not that bad. Boy, it's getting quiet now, you see? Because it's already, tolerance is the, is the word for the day. Tolerance. So just pull a little bit from Hindus, pull a little, pull a little bit from everywhere and then build you a life. I'm going to bring it in the church. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and gone away from the faith. They know so much that they don't even serve God no more. The main emphasis, as the name implies, is a claim to knowledge that other believers don't have. Let me tell you what, where that lives more than any other place, right here. I know a little bit more about God than you do, so now I can condescend to you because I have the gnosis. So what have I become? A Gnostic. So you got somebody on fire for God, been saved two years, somebody been serving God for 20 years, one has been serving God for 20 years, is bored, ain't got no fire in their bosom, and never makes a mistake. Then the, the guy that got saved two years is freshly off drugs, lifting his hands, crying in the altar, and every time he does a little bit of something off, the guy that's been serving God for 20 years, there's a bump on the log in the church that don't participate in nothing that he don't agree with, is telling this guy how off he is. And this guy's mopping the floor. He's cleaning the nursery. He's doing whatever he can do. And what, guess what? He cussed somebody out yesterday. Now the clapping's going to stop. He cussed somebody out yesterday. But you know everything so much that you have lifted yourself just a little. Gnosticism is alive in the church more than it's alive anywhere. Because you know what the church is full of? Know-it-alls. We know what should be happening. We know how you should have pastored during the pandemic. Let me tell you something. The pandemic about killed me. You want to be vulnerable and transparent? It wore me out as a pastor more in one year than the last 10 years has wore me out. Because people lied, they were with you, they bolted, then lied about you. It's unbelievable what pastors went through in this pandemic season. And I know that makes you a little uncomfortable, but you know what you need to be. Because I'm telling you what, sheep have sure wore shepherds out. I told you I came to encourage you. So I'm praying the church is emptied of all Gnostics. 
Let me remind all of you of something. Paul wrote the church and he said, you know in part and you prophesy in part. When you see him, you shall know fully and you shall be fully known. When you get to a place, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. When you get to a place that you think you know more than everybody else, you're in a very, very, very dangerous place. The Bible says, beware when you think you're standing lest you fall. I heard Turnell Nelson say something one time and I never forgot. He said, you don't even know God till you served him for 40 years. And he proved that scripturally. 40 is a number of probation. So the first 40 years of serving God, he said, you're on probation. We make it too easy for you to serve God. Come up here and say a prayer and now you're a Christian. <laughs> Cookie cut. No discipline. No discipling. No learning. Amen. Number three. Is what we call asceticism. It's an offshoot of Gnosticism. It's this erroneous teaching. I won't even look at the notes. You can get them off here right here. But basically, it says that your body is material, and the material of your body is evil towards God. So what you have to do is punish yourself through self-denial. Like, don't be good to yourself. Be mean to yourself. Boy, that is the height of religion. Woo, self-denial, self-abuse. And if you do that, you'll get a higher level. If you fast for 50 days, you'll know God better. Fasting for 50 days does not give you any more knowledge of God. It gives you more power against the enemy. Asceticism, this is what Paul said about it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. I'm coming after the religious people. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and in self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgement. Boy, indulgence. Let me, let me tell you something, man. Some of y'all are so bent to be religious that I can say jackass and you will backslide. You will lose your salvation over jackass. God forbid I say pissed off. And that's how unreal Christianity is. That's how fake it is. And Paul wrote this church 
the Colossians and said, you have built your whole relationship with God on things you can't do. You are still in Genesis chapter 2 where God said, listen to what he said, you can eat of every tree in this garden, but don't touch one. What did they go after? One. The one they can't touch. They can be eating from all these trees, enjoying all this stuff. And they're going to eat from the one. God said, don't tell you. You know what it was? The knowledge of good and evil. You know why God told him you can't eat from that? Because you'll never figure out what is good versus evil. That's not for you to decide. That's my business. They ate of it. And what have we been doing ever since? Trying to figure out, was that good what he did or was that evil? And that's the way Christians spend their entire lives judging what is good and what is evil. And God forbid, jackass. Leave it alone, Pastor Rick. Leave it alone, Pastor Rick. I had people texting me, inboxing me. You watch Yellowstone. Do you know what they say on Yellowstone? Yeah, the same thing they say right down there at Walmart. When there's a line, the same stuff they say at Christmas time when stuff goes on sale for 60% off and they're fighting over it. And hallelujah, bless the Lord, I'm going to get it. And somebody got it in their hands and what they call them? A jackass. To religious men, religion is killing the church today. Amen. It's killing it. The last one is antinomianism. I love this one because I studied it forever. Basically, antinomianism says because your body is separate from your soul, you can participate in whatever your body wants to participate in and it doesn't affect your soul. Anti is against, nomian is law. Not the law of the Ten Commandments, but moral laws. So you live a life of antinomianism, which means you partake in anything you want to partake in because whatever you partake in cannot affect your soul, which is totally opposite of what Jesus said. Amen. Okay? Your eye is the lamp to your soul. We already went through soul, and you know how your soul can be affected. You can't separate soul and body and spirit. They are interconnected. So if you participated in, the, in it in the flesh, you're going to feel it in your soul because they are connected. But now you have, a, you have people that feel like there are no limits. It's all liberty. And Paul wrote the church at Galatia and said, do not use your liberty to violate your convictions. Are y'all with me? Do you, are you starting to feel the balance here? And this is, this is if you want to go deep in God, then you've got to learn this stuff. But you, people won't. They won't. They won't do it. You won't, you won't study. You know how long I've been studying these philosophies? Josh will tell you. Crystal will tell you. And Eric will tell you. I've been teaching on these philosophies for 20-something years. David will tell you. For 20-something years. And you know how many times people have truly grasped this type of knowledge? Not many times. About 10% of the people really care. And so they live their life topsy-turvy. I'm unsaved one day. I'm saved the next day. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to hell. Oh, I'm going to heaven today. Now I'm going to hell. I better not touch that. Better not eat that. 
I'm going to eat all this and I'm going to touch all that. And we're a bunch of schizophrenic people trying to figure out what in the world's going on when we're supposed to be the people that bring understanding and enlightenment to a world that is totally dazed and confused. All right, all right, all right. I'll give you two more real quick. Number five, universalism. Basically, Universalism is about as stupid as anything can be. Universalism just basically says everybody's going to heaven. They just choose their own way to get there. Now, we look at that and laugh, but that is prominent in the world today. It's prominent. Everybody's going to heaven. Here's what the gospel of universalism says. Got to be careful how I would say that. Sin is an inappropriate response to a legitimate need. Sin is an illegitimate response to a legitimate need. Or sin, or you could say sin is an illegitimate response to an illegitimate need. You know what that tells me? Both of them are sin. <laughs> but here's where we get messed up. We think we know the definition of sin. Sin isn't saying jackass. If you, Christians need to grow up. The biggest sin you will ever commit in your life, listen to Pastor Rick, is missing the purpose of God for you being here. The spony says, sin is missing the mark. That's the definition of sin. The mark is scopos. It's the focus of your purpose. When you're living to live and you're not searching for that spot, that mark, that focus, that purpose, that's the biggest sin you will ever commit because God is looking at you like I put you there with an assignment and you're wandering ambiguously through life like you don't care. That's sin. Teaching good, Pastor Rick. The last one, I'll give you one more. Pluralism. This is huge. Every religion, pluralism says every religion contains truths about who we are, why we are here, and how we ought to live with ourselves and other people. In 1993, I wrote this today, the Parliament of World Religions met in Chicago to discuss this subject, pluralism. 6,000 delegates from different religions came to learn and share information with one another. There were 700 workshops every day. This is unbelievable. In the conference, when they gathered at night, Jesus was mentioned every night. Hear how he was mentioned. He was to be admired, quoted, and even compared to other prophets. He was listed as one who was enlightened among many others who were enlightened. He was admired for being a man for his time. He was a revealer of God, a man who achieved a high degree of enlightenment. But he is one to be loved, even followed, to be respected, but never worshipped. 
Now you say, Pastor Rick, that is the most asinine thing I've ever heard in my life. Who even believes that? I said 1993 is when this happened. Who would even think that? That's not happening. Oh, it's not? It's not? Let me show you something. Barna Research said this. Since 1993, two out of every three adults in America contend that the choice of one religious faith over another is irrelevant because all religions teach the same basic lessons about life. And it didn't work? Yes, it did work. Folks, being an American don't make you Christian. Did y'all hear me? See, hear me clearly. I'm going to take it a step further. This is not a Christian nation. Now, I know that's going to make your hair stand up and want to fight, and I don't care. You going to tell me a Christian nation is going to kill millions of babies every year? Really? This is a Christian nation? I'm not talking about how it was founded. I'm talking about what it is. Because if anything, how it was founded is irrelevant concerned to, con, uh, in relation to the time we're living in right now. You can't kill millions of babies every year and call yourself a Christian nation. You can't, you can't do that. If it was a Christian nation, these kids would still be praying like you and I did when we were in elementary school. It's not a Christian nation. If this was a Christian nation, the Bible would still be in the library and Ten Commandments would still be in the White House. You going to tell me it didn't work? The 1993 Parliament of Religions worked. And it's working stronger than ever right now. And Christians are sticking their head in the sand and refuse to learn things about pluralism, asceticism, antinomianism, Gnosticism. We don't care. And you wonder what you're fighting. This is what you're fighting. Why are we fighting? Like what's happening to our nation? What's happening to our churches? You refuse to study. That's why you're, half of you are bored with this already. Because I've used words that long and it don't make sense to you. But you're not disciplined enough to listen, much less apply this stuff to your life. If you did, you wouldn't be so mean. All religions, this is what they said, should be admired as one beautiful petal. Together, all religions form one magnificent flower. And Christians, listen to what they said, you are welcome. To be a part of the flower. The parliament concluded this. Christianity should be purged. Christianity should be purged of its sinful nature. Or I'm sorry. Christianity should be purged of its sinful state of mind. Wow. Namely, its exclusivism. To help integrate Christianity in the new mix, this is what they were told. We will write a new Bible for you. And it will be non-exclusive. Every religion says these words. We are one of many. Christianity is the only religion that says Christ is the only way. Every other religion says we are one of many. Christianity says Christ is the only way. You know what our problem is, y'all? 
Jesus. Jesus gave us a big problem. You know what he said? I am the way. The truth and the life. No man goes to the Father but by me. So there's not many ways to heaven. There's one way to heaven. There's one truth. There's one life. This generation has been conditioned to be tolerant, to be inclusive, and you've been taught that if you are exclusive, then you're acting like you're better than everybody else. If that's your attitude, then you don't have the heart of Jesus Christ. Have you learned anything? Next week, the third week, I mean the second week of this teaching, is going to answer all the questions I presented to you tonight. I'll just give you a hint. Paul said this, I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. What did he say he was sent to defend? The gospel. What did he say he was sent to confirm? The gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the Why? Because it is the power. It is the what? Power of who? What is the gospel? The power of God unto salvation. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers in heavenly places. We tear down strongholds and every imagination that exalts itself against the what? Knowledge of God.